0: welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com.
1: Well, I am really excited to welcome up our speaker for tonight. Most of you will know The person, because she is a member of the team here, she's one of my closest friends, and she just is a very godly human being, and I think that's the best thing that I could say about her. She's kind, and she's patient, and she genuinely loves people, but she is wise beyond her years, and I'm so grateful that we get her wisdom and her strength as part of this evening. And so Jazz is going to be finishing off our Nehemiah series, (laughs) Nehemiah 8, and so can I pray for you? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this message that Jazz has prepared. God, I thank you for the history with you that pours out of the words that she's put on this page. And Jesus, right now, I pray for each one of us in this room that you'd open our hearts, you'd open our eyes, you'd open our ears, God, that we would hear you, that we would see you. But most of all, God, as we learn from your scripture, as we learn from your word, we would encounter you and be changed into your likeness. Amen.
0: Hello. How are we doing? We're very like panoramic today. I feel like we're 180 degrees, I like it. Is that right, 180 degrees? Yes, maths. <laughs> so today we reached the final part of our series on Nehemiah. Hooray, it's been quite the journey, hasn't it? In week one, we prayed. In week two of the series, we planned Then we pioneered, we persevered, we prospered alongside Nehemiah. Last week we prevailed with the God who built the wall of the city with his people in 52 days. And today, in the sermon series sponsored by the letter P, we praise. But actually... Before we go any further, there's something I really need to address. This series has been crying out for a terrible Bible based joke. (laughs) Who is the shortest man in the Bible? Zacchaeus. But that's accurate. But I was going to go with (laughs) (laughs) Nehemiah. Nehemiah? Yeah? That's a good one. Thank you very much. But really, really, who was actually the smallest man in the Bible? Peter, he fell asleep on his watch. Get it? Asleep on his watch? Yeah, it would be small to fall asleep on a watch. Fell asleep on a watch. That one didn't go down quite so well. Okay, are you ready for my favorite one? Who was the first female economist in the Bible? No? Uh, it was Pharaoh's daughter because she went down to the banks of the Nile and drew out a little prophet. <laughs> Yay! You guys should really hear my one about Samson though cuz it brings the house down. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And that's the end of the sermon, good night. Right. Now we've got that on my system. We can move on. So, we've come through a lot with Nehemiah, and so far we've reached chapter 8. The city has been rebuilt, the worshippers are in place, the praying, the planning, the pioneering, the persevering, the prospering, and the prevailing. But now what? What is it all for? What have Nehemiah and his people been building for? As we have been learning to play, plan, pioneer, persevere, prosper, and prevail in our own lives and in the lives of our city, what are we building for? Well, I think we learn in this chapter that we have built to restore relationship with God and each other because of the joy that's set before us and the response we praise, which is the purpose of our city. So let's turn to Nehemiah 8, 1 to 12, and we're going to read the Bible together. So it's a bit of a long passage, so just relax into it. Enjoy the story. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah and Maseiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijar, Hashem, Hashbanadar, Zachariah, and Mashalem. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Maseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I did a Hebrew class once. That was the result. <laughs> <laughs> they read from the book of the law of the God making the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people, they'd been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go, enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy. Because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So, what is going on here in Nehemiah 8? There's the people calling the leaders to read, read, and teach the law. Then there's a whole list of names. Then everyone cries and worships. Then Nehemiah tells everyone not to grieve because of the joy of the Lord. And later on in the chapter, we know that the people have a massive party because God's law told them to. It's quite the emotional roller coaster. But in this chapter, We see the restoration of relationship and recommitment of covenant because of joy and a response of praise. You see, we praise a God whose ultimate goal, his very being, is relationship. Joy-filled, totally unhindered, utterly complete relationship. That's the big idea. It's heaven's glorious strategy. It's the means and the end. It's why we build our homes and our cities that we might know the revelation of God and know the joy of relationship in all its fullness. A historian who was writing in the same century as Nehemiah said, it is the people, not the walls, who make a city. And Nehemiah has built the walls. And so now it's time to rebuild relationships and restore community. And we read that all the people gathered to hear the word of the Lord and told Ezra to bring out the book of the law. It was a people who were hungry to hear the word of God. And the book of the law is what we now consider the first five books of the Bible. And we read that the Levites, whose speciality was teaching the law, were there to help explain what it all meant. It was also the first day of the seventh month, which for Jewish people holds huge significance. It's the first day of Rosh Hashanah, which is the first day of a Jewish New Year celebrations. It's a really, really holy, sacred day. And it's followed by 10 days of festivals, which end with what's called the Day of Atonement, which is when the Jewish people celebrate the kindness of God and the forgiveness of sin is celebrated. They remember the covenant that God promised to be with them forever with unfailing love. And all the people, the men and the women, and probably even children as well, gathered for six hours to hear the word and revelation of God. We read on in the chapter and we hear that ordinary people outside the Levitical tribe gather in their houses the next day to learn more and seek how to apply it to their current context. And that's what we're doing now we're excited (laughs) Mama. The inclusiveness here is so important. God's word was read and taught in a way that it would reach as many people as possible, as well as the fact it was the community that called for the word of the Lord, and it's taught to them. For the Jewish people, the Torah, the books of the law, were the very revelation of God himself. And here they are on the first day of the seventh month, a really holy day, one that marks a remembrance of creation and covenant, calling on their leaders to read it to them as a community. How hungry are we for the word of God and for his presence? You see, the law that is read out at first appears like a set of abstract rules, long and confusing and apparently fairly inaccessible. But we see here that when we take the time to understand it and study it, the law becomes less abstract and becomes a vehicle of divine love. A way of living that means we can be reconciled with our creator and for our flourishing. The laws are physically, emotionally and spiritually practical. They describe a covenant between God and his people. And this covenant, covenant, I've gone northern all of a sudden. (laughs) This covenant is a contract. It's a set of promises between God and his people. They are the very reach of a God who longs to be connected with us and to see his people flourish as a community in relationship with him and each other. The guidance and grace found in this covenant with us are what saves us and restores our relationship with him and each other. Here, through Nehemiah and Ezra and their community, on this significant holy day, he is reminding the people of his covenant with them as they seek him, continuing the process of restoring their relationship with him and each other. Because since the moment you were created... Since the moment we were created, God has been longing for relationship with you, with us. The cry of Nehemiah's people to hear his voice taught in their new city and the longing of God to meet with us comes together here in this beautiful moment as a community understand and accept his law as the way to know his presence among them. Here we see the recommitment of covenant and the restoration of relationship between a people and their God. And this is why we gather on a Sunday to recommit our covenant, our promise to love and be loved by him and restore our relationships with him and each other. And now, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, nothing can separate us from the love of God ever again. Through relationship with Jesus, we are given full access to the love and character of God. But how hungry are we for it? Nehemiah's walls and houses spring to life as relationship is restored. The covenant is renewed and remembered and true community is reformed and the city begins to live and breathe and so will us so will we as we keep our eyes on and prioritize relationship with Jesus and each other above all else but this is hard work if we've followed Jesus for a while or known the breakdown of relationships well, i think we all have at some point we know that maintaining these relationships is hard life happens we get it wrong We feel like God has let us down, and we know that at times other people have. So, why do we do it? Why do we keep pursuing these things? And why does God ask us to? I think it's because of the joy that is set before us. We read in the text that people are weeping in response to hearing God's law. And I don't think it's just because they've been stood up for six hours. Nehemiah says, go and get your favorite food and drink. Share it with others. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Where is this joy coming from? After everything they've been through as a people, they hear the law, the revelation of God, and they see just how wrong they've gotten it, how much they fall short. So why does Nehemiah insist on joy? Joy is mentioned twice elsewhere as well in this chapter, in verses 12 and 17, and it's when the people understood the scriptures and when they obeyed the scriptures. It's the recommitment of covenant, the understanding of law as a vehicle of divine love. They have heard the voice of a God who longs to connect with his people. It's the beginning of a feast that ends with the Day of Atonement. This is where the joy comes from. Free and forgiven, relationship between God and his people is restored. The joy comes in the restoration of relationship. You see, joy is both the fruit and the facilitator of restored relationships. And this isn't the only time in which joy is involved in the restoration of relationship. A while ago, I went on a silent retreat to a monastery with old Mikey Strong. He's not old, he's a young man. Um, We went on a silent retreat to a monastery. Um, I was mildly terrified because we didn't really know monk etiquette, and we didn't really have anyone to ask, what do you do when you're a monk? So we were just there, being very quiet. Because I knew the one rule, which was don't say anything. <laughs> and we had like a weird quiet lunch in a side room. It was very funny. Anyway, so I, because I didn't really quite know what to do, I went and sat in the chapel. Because so I was like, I'll just sit very still all day. And as I was sat there all day in silence, I was sat staring forward And in front of me, there was a sculpture of Jesus hung on a cross and the Latin underneath it read, The God who ruled us from a tree. As I sat there and saw Jesus hanging on a cross, I contemplated the loss and pain of his death and thought to myself, where was the joy of God in this moment? Where is the joy as we remember the cross And then my mind wandered to Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus endured death on a cross that we might be reconciled with God because of the hope of joy. Occasionally, people comment on the joy that my and Mike, my and Mike, my and Ma, me and Mike hold. Got there at the end. Joy is my middle name. It's literally my name. But I don't think that joy that I hold is genetic makeup or a personality quirk that results in general jolliness. Some of it might be that. But I believe it's the fruit of actually enduring deep pain in the company of a God who loves us and a community who cares for us. Part of my story involves those close to me suffering abuse at hands of people who were supposed to nurture and protect them. I've seen people I adore walking through incredibly difficult things and coming to the pain of dealing with this. I live with the effects of it daily. In my previous job as a mental health nurse, I've seen beautiful recovery, but I've also seen fractured souls and over-medicated people left to deal with their own trauma. I've had to cut people down from suicide attempts, and I've had to console parents when they've lost their children. But one of my greatest privileges now here at Emmaus is walking through the tough stuff with some of you. One of the reasons I sit down the front on a Sunday so often is because actually when I sit further back, I just get really overwhelmed. Because I watch you with all your incredible stories of triumph over adversity and pain and joy. And in the midst of it, I see you praise him. That makes me cry. And I can't do anything. And I would just be a mess. I'm not telling you these things so that you can give me a pat on the back or a cuddle, though I do love a little hug. Nor am I trying to claim other people's hard-fought victories and biggest hurts for my own. I'm telling you because we have walked through these things together and we have still known the joy of the Lord after the dark of the night. How? It has to be a miracle a slow-burning, plodding act of God, there is no other explanation. In the darkest moments, do I understand suffering? No. But I do know that God is good because I have seen his faithfulness in our story and in the stories of others around us, his faithfulness in the ancient story of Nehemiah to his faithfulness that we see in our lives today. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So surely we can endure anything as we stand in the knowledge of the resurrection, the new covenant. We can still sing and laugh and carry on, just as Nehemiah's people did. Not because we're repressing the pain or that God is cruel and doesn't care, but because of the miracle of joy. To still know joy after truly loving and walking with people who have lived through the worst this world has to offer is testament to the power of the resurrection. There is always life after death. And joy is a marker of life. Where there is life, there is joy. And where there is joy, there is life. To walk with the wounded through the battle as Jesus commands us to, to commit to covenant relationship, means we're inevitably going to get wounded along the way. But to endure this, we must remain joyful. It seems to me that maybe joy is familiar with the pain of the grave, but makes its home in the hope of the resurrection. So when the dark days have come, I've had to contend for joy. We must contend for joy together as a community. So how do we cultivate it? Is joy a choice? I'm not actually sure. Perhaps the choice is a few steps before the fork in the road when we reach joy or despair. Perhaps the choice is actually a thousand little ones made daily before we reach this division. In Philippians, Paul's letter is full of joy. He urges the church at Philippi from his prison cell to rejoice at every opportunity. He tells them he prays for them joyfully. He rejoices in their care for him. He calls them to rejoice over each other and to rejoice for no specific reason at all other than the fact that God is God. In his letter of joy, he urges us to believe the best of each other and live in unity. If we spent our lives believing the best of everybody else, I promise you that will change your life. Some people call it naivety. I think actually it's a spiritual gift. Honestly, if you believe the best of the people around you, it will change your life. He urges us to force habits of prayer and rejoicing so that when the dark days come and we are acutely aware of the way in which we and the world around us fall short, when we reach that fork in the road, the hope and the power of the joy set before us will see us through. So, I suppose it's not as simple for me as choosing joy. I have to contend for it. And God graciously gives it as a beautiful gift. Paul acknowledges that spiritual formation is not a passive activity. We have to press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of for him or for us. And as we press on and plod slowly towards creating rhythms of rejoicing and prayer, we see the fruit of joy grow in us and those around us despite the circumstances we face. God has promised that if we stay close to him, we will know joy. We will know joy and we will know his goodness. We see this here in Nehemiah. They recommit and remember the covenant, acknowledge his revelation, and then they have a party. Pain and despair live in the void, the absence of relationship. But joy inhabits connection. You see, God didn't just shout down a list of random rules, rather a law that would act as a vehicle of divine love that allows our relationships with him and each other to flourish. When I have turned to God and I have planted my feet in the hope of his resurrection and his promises, I have found joy. When we have turned to a community and friends who love and support us, as we love and support them, we have found joy. Joy. Joy seems to me to be the fruit of a life that seeks to identify with Christ at all costs. It's the fruit of a loving relationship with the Father. The fruit we are all desperate to know and for our loved ones to know. Joy loosens our grip on our own agendas and it releases our own intensity. There is so much freedom to be found in joy. Most importantly, Paul teaches us in Philippians that we mustn't confuse joy for fluff and frivolity and solemnity for substance. Joy is one of the richest, deepest substances of all. And when we stick close to God, we find the joy of heaven in the most seemingly insignificant things. I found that there really is joy to be found in everything that God has made. And my story so far is one that tells me that joy is worth fighting for. After all, joy is a telltale sign of heaven on earth. And this joy has carried me through. And so just as the people in Nehemiah, we will allow the joy of the Lord to be our strength. We read at the end of the chapter that the people hadn't known such joy for a thousand years. We, Emmaus, rode will allow the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Not our city walls or our buildings, our established households or our roles within the community, our belongings, our national identity. No, we will allow the joy of the Lord to be our strength. So we have built to restore relationship with God and each other, Because of the joy that is set before us and the response, we praise the purpose of our city. The natural response to joy is to praise. Joy is both the fruit and the facilitator of restored relationships. And when we see relationship restored, we praise. The theologian Tozer says this. His supreme purpose in making man was to have somebody capable to properly and sufficiently worship him and satisfy his heart. His supreme purpose in making man was to have somebody capable to properly and sufficiently worship him and satisfy his own heart. This is why we pray and plan and pioneer and persevere and prosper and prevail. That he might be praised with joy and out of the fullness of relationship with him and each other. A city that praises God is more than one that has churches in it that sing songs on a Sunday. Sung worship is one beautiful expression of praise. But true praise has the potential to ripple through everything. If creation exists to praise him, so should our cities. And that's why we build. That's why we seek to restore relationships because of the joy set before us. That he might be praised. And at a church in Guildford, we're not trying to build a church. We're trying to build a city on the foundations of a covenant relationship with God and each other because of the joy set before us that he might be praised. Why do we sing songs on a Sunday? Because he is worthy, because it realigns perspective and restores our relationship with him and others in order that he might be praised as wholeheartedly as possible. Why do we teach the word of God? Because he is sovereign and because it illuminates our understanding of him and the world around us, that it might restore our relationship with him and others and makes a way that he might be praised as wholeheartedly as possible. Why do we care about social transformation? Because it restores dignity to God's creation. It reestablishes rights and re-empowers those who we have trampled on. It restores relationship with each other and him, that relationships might be restored again that he might be praised as wholeheartedly as possible why do we pray because in prayer we sit in his presence for the sake of love alone that we might be transformed into his likeness that our relationships with him and each other might be restored that he might be praised wholeheartedly why do we care about pastoral care Because as we sit together and work out what has shaped us for better or worse, and we reframe this in the light of God's word and his presence, it restores our relationship with him and each other that we might be praised wholeheartedly. Why do we do everything that we do? That we might build a city that praises God. The book of Nehemiah begins with mourning and weeping and ends with a massive celebration. The joy of which the people hadn't known in a thousand years. And this is our story too. One day we will reach a place where there is no more suffering. There is no more pain and incomparable joy. is heaven. So how do we bring some of this heaven to earth? Well, we listen to his word. We restore relationship with him and each other because of the joy set before us, so that he might be praised. It's good news. Heaven is a party, and we can have one here too. And Nehemiah wasn't just a dreamer. We see from this entire story that he's also incredibly practical. He had a plan from the beginning. And I have deduced that he probably did some maths. I'm cracking out the maths everywhere today to build the wall. So I've done a little bit of maths too. So when we're a bit quieter tonight because lots of people have gone home for the summer and things. But when we're in the middle of term, we tend to average about 100 people here, right? Yeah, there's about 100 of us. So if all 100 of us introduced just three people to Jesus over the next year, that's 300 people that have given their lives to Jesus. And if I was just to be like, guys, let's uh, bring 300 people to Jesus, you'd be like, guys, you've got overexcited again. But three people each over the next year... As Hannah taught last week, we worship the God of the 52 days. He built a wall that took the Ottoman Empire four years to build. With his people, he built it in 52 days. We worship that same God. Surely he can use us to bring three people into his kingdom over the next year. Imagine the impact on our city. And what if those 300 people all brought three people to Christ over the next year? That's 900 people. Look at my maths. And so on and so forth. You can see where this is going. So what if we all bring three people to church, to Alpha, to Jesus, whatever, to see our city praising him? Let's get hungry for his presence and take responsibility for our city, just as Nehemiah's community did. Think of those three people now. Think how a fully restored relationship with Jesus might impact them. Think of the joy that's set before them and you. Think of the joy that is set before our city if we learn to restore relationships, that he might be fully praised. That's literally heaven on earth. So why don't you make a plan now? How are you going to go from beginning to end with them, from morning to feasting, from praying for them to them praising? How do you need to build your home, your collective, your family for them to be able to join in? For them to know the joy found in the fullness of relationship with you and another and God? Perhaps you need to recommit to God and restore your relationship with him first. You need to know that because of Jesus and his kindness and grace, there is nothing that separates you from his love. Nothing. Not that thing either. Nothing. Perhaps you need to know some of the strength found in the joy of the Lord that we've talked about today. Perhaps it's a really practical rebuilding You need to consider rebuilding the timetable of your week so that it leaves time for relationship. That your life might praise God in every way and that our city would reflect this. So we have built to restore relationship with God and each other because of the joy set before us. And the response, we praise the purpose of our city. The word and revelation of God's presence with us brings joy and restores relationships and brings joy again. And so we praise, and when we praise, our purpose is fulfilled. If we are a people of praise, the purpose of our city will be fulfilled. We are designed in such a clever way that this is a beautiful cyclical process. We are building a city that restores relationship because of joy, that he might be praised, that releases joy again as we fulfill our purpose. And in response to that, we praise. And so we go on and on and on. Relationship with God and each other. The means and the end. So as we go on with our day and our weeks and our summer now, Whatever we are facing, whether it involves allowing the joy of Christ to carry us through our darkest hours, or whether we are praying, planning, pioneering, persevering, prospering or prevailing, let's be people known for our rhythms of rejoicing. Let's press on and contend for joy in everyone and everything we see and watch life break out in our city and his name be praised. Um, Amen.